Good morning and welcome to First Baptist Church. We are glad to have you here. If you are a visitor, uh, we give you a special greeting. And uh, two things for our visitors. First of all, there's a table in the foyer outside those uh, glass panes that have stuff on it. And on that table, anything that you see, it is for you to take as you would want. It is our gift to you. The only thing we're hoping for from our visitors is uh, that there's a piece of paper behind uh, the chairs. And on one side of that piece of paper is a place that anybody can put a prayer request and we drop it in the offering plate and we pray for you. But what we're hoping for our visitors that you would be willing to fill out the other side of that piece of paper that just gives us an idea of who you are, what your uh, address is, so that we can send you a letter thanking you for coming and uh, that that would be our way of knowing that you would be with us. So... Uh, welcome. If you're near the aisle, we have our friendship pads, the little black pads there. We'd love you to grab that. Just sign your name, no address or anything needed. Sign it on down to the end of the aisle. It'll come back and that way you can know who is worshiping with you on uh, this Sunday morning. We had a wonderful night uh, last night as we had our sweetheart banquet. Phil and Mimi were our speakers and we had some singing and some good food and stuff. And uh, Fortunately for you, if you didn't make it last night, you're going to hear a little different story today from Phil and Mimi. They gave their story of how they came to know each other, how they got married and all that. And Phil was making all the guys in the audience look really good. And uh, then uh, today they're going to share a little bit in a, a couple minutes about what God is doing uh, in their missionary work. And there's some changes afoot, so we're really glad that you two are here with us. We have next week a special communion service, so if you would come prepared to do something, I would really appreciate it. Come prepared to share with the rest of the congregation, just where you are, we'll bring a microphone around, what in God's Word has, has spoken to you over the last week's months. What passage, what verse has just really, as you've read it, uh, just kind of jumped out and grabbed you, and you can just read it and then uh, share what God has spoken to you through that verse. We usually do what we call testimony time uh, around communion about once a quarter, and this is that time. You can sure give a testimony as well of what God's up to in your life, but we'd really like it centered around God's Word since uh, in these days we're spending time in God's Word. So come ready next week with a scripture or a short passage that you can encourage the rest of us with. In a couple weeks, we have a membership class, and it's on the 6th of March after this service. There's no obligation. Uh, it's for people who either want to become members or people who are kind of wondering, who are these First Baptist people? What do they believe? Where are they going? What are they doing? And why? And stuff. And we just outline in about an hour and a half after lunch together who we are and where we're going. And then it's up to you of whether you want to join in in membership. There's no obligation or anything like that. But we do need to know that you're coming, and that's at Sign Up Central if you would remember to do that. And in the bulletin on the other side from the intercessor, it gives you an idea more about that class. Also at Sign Up Central is uh, our Easter choir. The CDs are out, and there's a sign-up list. If you want to sing... Uh, in a choir that's actually going to start practicing here in the next weeks, 
uh, for our special Easter service. Mary Alzandrini would love you to grab a CD and sign up that you're going to be part of that. We're also doing something special for Palm Sunday this year. Has anybody ever seen uh, Linda Von Baron up here with her bell thing? Well, instead of Linda doing a solo and running around like a crazy woman, she wants others to join her. And she wants people who have a little bit of ability to read music and notes and a little bit of rhythm, and she would love to work with you in the next weeks, and we're going to have a special Palm Sunday thing with the kids and some bells and stuff like that. So if that sounds good to you, there's no sign-up out there, but just call Linda, her number's in the bulletin, or you can give the, the office a call, and Connie or Shirley will get you in touch with Linda. But she's just looking for some people who would want to help out uh, to make that a real God-honoring service. At Sign Up Central, the last day uh, today to sign up for something is our uh, Pinewood Derby. It's on Saturday night for the guys. And guys, uh, if you don't sign up for today, tough luck, you lose, all that kind of stuff. But we'd really love you to come. You don't have to do a car thing. You can just come for the dinner. But if you want to do a car thing, they're out there and you can uh, do that as well. And I think that is all our announcements. But I do want to introduce... Uh, Phil and Mimi Bjorklund, you guys want to come up? They are missionaries that we have supported with World Venture for years. And uh, they have been encouraging college students uh, at campuses to consider missionary work and help them along and stuff. But God has a real change uh, going on in their lives, and we wanted them to tell you about it. There is a pandemic of incertitude among young adult believers Uh, As we have been working in the last number of years on university campuses throughout the Midwest, many of the young adults we're meeting, they want to make a difference for the Lord. They want to do something that's significant in the world, and yet they're worried about making a mistake. And they come to us uh, oftentimes more than we can handle and ask us to help guide them through issues to discover who did God make them to be And what should they do with the rest of their lives? It's been a really great ride doing that. And we've been praying that, Lord, how could we do a better job at this? And uh, just looking for something different to reach more young adult lives. And then... About three years ago, World Venture realized we've got to do something to help this generation develop into ministry, whatever that may be. That may be in the business world or in a church ministry or the mission field, but we've got to help them. We've got to get off the dime and, and work with these young people, developing them, mentoring them into to whatever God has called them to do. And so Phil and I started praying along with the mission, Lord, uh, what is that going to look like? And a new organization or a new branch of World Venture called Journey Corps was established. Kind of in the beginning with a Peace Corps look to it, Uh, going overseas, living in communities with uh, nationals and so forth. And it's since changed a little bit. But again, uh, it's starting in Cote d'Ivoire or Ivory Coast, West Africa. And uh, they have a campus out there. And students are able to come either right out of high school, halfway through college, or right out of college, 18 to 29, and uh, spend some time learning ministry, learning from nationals, being mentored into their gifting, and uh, they'll get to taste and see a wide variety of ministries. So we start praying for this ministry. Lord, please bring along good leaders, leaders who love young adults, 
leaders who love Africa and know Africa. And perhaps that know French, since it's French West Africa. And so we prayed for two years for that, while we were ministering on the campus. And then God said, um, <clears throat> you're the answer to that prayer. And so while we have some great leaders on the ground there, none of them are mentors. And so they've asked us to come join the team as the uh, heads of the mentoring team there. We're looking forward to going in hopefully October if our support is raised. I'd like to share a passage before Phil finishes here, if I can get my Bible open. (laughs) This is kind of the goal of our heart. Uh, Psalm 71, verse 17 and 18. Since my youth, O God, you have taught me, and to this day I declare your marvelous deeds. Now that's Phil and my story. We've loved the Lord, known the Lord for a long time, but a lot of these young people have not. They've not had that mentored into them. But then it goes on to say in 18, even when I am old and gray, which I hope never to be, old and gray, do not forsake me, O God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your might to all who are to come. So we found that we were the answer to our own prayer. Uh, And uh, we will be leaving our staff position with World Venture in June and hopefully embarking on this new life for us sometime in October. Uh, This is an opportunity for young adults to be able to come and both do service and ministry and also have people helping them with the career choices in life, getting an understanding of who God made them to be. The goals of Journey Corps are to produce uh, lovers of Jesus first and foremost, lifelong learners and servant leaders. Uh, that's what we want them to do. By the end of their year with us, a year or two years, we want them to be able to leave having a life statement, a vision statement for their lives that says, we know who God made us to be, and we are going to pursue that. Now, this is a great service for not only churches who have young adults that are searching for themselves, But as World Venture, we are looking for the next generation of missionaries to serve internationally as well. So we would certainly appreciate your prayers. Our friends are retiring and coming back to the United States, and we're going the other direction. They're saying, you're doing what? This does not come without a lot of change for us. So please pray us into this new lifestyle and this uh, new ministry as we embark on it come the fall. Blessings our children and seven grandchildren here in the States. That is the most painful thing, so thank you. Well, from one gray hair to another, Phil, I'm just thrilled that there are people who, instead of just saying it's time for retirement and do whatever I want to do, it's like there's a new chapter in my ministry, and I'm not sure... Uh, how long that will last and what will come of it, but that you guys are open to that. So we will pray for you. If you are a person that that sounds like uh, a ministry that you'd love to support, they are looking for financial support and prayer support. Our church is continuing to support them, but as individuals, if you would be interested, you could just get a hold of them, talk to them afterwards, and I know that they would love to talk to you as well. We had a really unusual week this week. Uh, Nobody was in the hospital, and uh, it seemed like everybody was getting better. Both Clyde Lair and uh, June Lawson's tests came back 
uh, negative, meaning positive, like there's nothing bad going on that we found. They're still wondering what's going on, so they'd appreciate your continued prayers. But the specific tests that they had showed that there weren't any big deals going on that they have found. So if you would continue praying for them. Remember uh, Gus McIntyre, a 90-year-old to this week. Uh, his party is from 1 to 3, open house down in the family room. Love for you to come and just uh, share with Gus your appreciation of him serving the Lord for so many uh, years. So we came to do one very special thing today, and that is to worship the Lord. And worship is in a lot of different forms, but uh, we start here usually with singing praises of our God. So if our worship team would come forward, I'd appreciate that. We move on to worshiping God through giving, and if you're part of our congregation, part of our family, we hope you came prepared to do that. If this is the week that you did that, we worship God in spending time in and talking about His Word, so we're going to do that as well. So would you stand with me and uh, let me pray as we come boldly before God's throne to worship and adore Him today. Father, we are really thrilled that unlike a lot of places in this world, uh, including Cote d'Ivoire at times, that we are just free and, and easy to come and worship you and we don't have any worries about what people will think and all of that. And we thank you for this beautiful sanctuary that we can meet in, but, I, but we're especially glad, Father, that we can walk into your throne room this morning and bring you praise and bring you the gifts from our hearts and our pocketbooks and, and Lord, from our lips, and that you would be honored and glorified by them. And we pray that as we do that, you would encourage our hearts. What a great God that you are, and what an incredible Lord that we serve. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Well, we are about in the middle of our seven weeks of walking in the Word. And so far we've talked about, uh, first of all, why is God's Word so important? And we said that it really is the foundation of everything that we believe. This isn't about what Pastor Mark thinks. This isn't about what the deacon board come up with. This is what does God's Word say about these things. We have doctrinal statements that kind of show what we believe. And then with our lives we show what we believe. How we choose to live is an expression of what we have chosen to believe is true, and, and it comes from God's Word. Then we talked about in the last two weeks, how did we get God's Word from heaven in His heart down to the printed page that we can go to every week? We talked about the first process of from heaven to Paul and Moses and Luke as they wrote it down, and then last week, how did we go from two, 3,000 years ago with the first papyri that Paul wrote on to the English version of that Greek letter that we can actually read today? And what we're going to do today is we're going to, if you've ever listened to uh, WBNH, they have on uh, a thing by David, Dr. David Jeremiah. It's called Route 66. And the reason I think he chose that is because there's 66 books in the Bible. We're, we're going to take a little journey today on explaining to you how God's Word is set up and how did it, is it organized 
And then second of all, how did these books that we're going to see aren't books technically, but they're different genres of literature, how did these 66 end up becoming the Word of God? The first one we're going to spend quite a bit of time. The second one we're going to kind of breeze through and just give you a quick overview. And all I want you to do today, we're not even going to read any passages of Scripture like we normally do. I want you to just turn in your Bible, and if you didn't bring one, you can grab one in front of you, to the table of contents. I just want you to turn in your table of contents and see how easy this whole Bible is laid out and how it is put together. Well, most of you, if you have your table of contents, you'll see there's two divisions of the Bible. There's an Old Testament and a New Testament. The Old Testament is the first two-thirds of your Bible, the fat part. And then you hit Matthew, and that's the skinny part at the end that is the New Testament. In the Old Testament is the testament or witness or explanation of what God has done in days of old before Jesus showed up. All the way from Genesis, where creation uh, starts the whole deal, through uh, Malachi and the story of the people of Israel going into captivity and then coming back to the land about 425 B.C. Then we have the New Testament, that is the story or the witness or the explanation of what God has done in newer days. And that starts with the birth of Jesus, we'll call it 0 A.D., and the years after that of His life, and then His death and resurrection, and then how the church of Jesus Christ actually got started. But in these 66 books that we call the Old and New Testament, they are actually divided up in some interesting ways. And the first part of the, of the kind of books, or the first genre of books, is called history books. These are books that take the story, tell us the history of how God was at work in the world and in His people from here to here and then from here to here. And the Old Testament has history books, and the New Testament has history books. And if you look at your table of contents, the history books in the Old Testament are Genesis all the way through Esther. There are 17 history books, and they're all right in a row. And these are the stories, the history, the chronicle of God taking the people that he is working with in this world all the way from creation, and then, you know, Adam and Eve and Noah and all the story, up to the time of the kings and the nation of Israel and the split, and then God disciplining them and literally taking them into captivity. And it ends in about 425 B.C. with the people of God coming back in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther coming back to the land of the Old Testament uh, of Jerusalem. Now, not all of these story uh, line books are the same. There's some of them that are a little kind of like to the side, like Leviticus and Deuteronomy. They don't really carry the story forward very much as much as they 
tell about the law of God. And at the time that Moses received the law, at that point in the story, those two books talk about what the law of God is. Then you have the two stories about Ruth and Esther. They're kind of a sidelight as well. They're not carrying the story along as much as they are telling you about God's faithfulness in the lives of two women in the time of the judges for Ruth and in the time of the exile for Esther. Then you have First and Second Chronicles, which are a retelling of the story. They kind of tell the story from a different camera angle that you heard uh, during the Kings and the, the books of Samuel, First and Second Samuel. It's kind of a retelling of the story just from a different kind of camera angle. And then we have, as some of you know, some very important books at the beginning, the five books of the law, or the Torah, or some people call it the Pentateuch. It's the books uh, that the Jews regard as very sacred, and they tell the story of the beginnings of how God got this whole thing started, and they are the beginning of these first 17 books. But together... These books tell uh, the whole story from creation up until 425 years before Christ and what God was doing in the world and particularly what He did with His people that started with Abraham and then went through this time of the nation of Israel and the kings and all of that kind of stuff. But then the story stops. And around 425 B.C., the Bible doesn't have anything to say for 400 and a few years. It's a time of silence. There's nothing written in the Bible about that time period where the people have kind of come back to the land from being in captivity in Babylon. And then about 0 A.D., the story starts again. Because around 0 A.D., in the throne room of heaven, the Father looks at the Son who's sitting at His right hand and says, it's time. And Jesus stands up and takes off His royal robe and literally steps out of heaven into a manger and it starts the biblical story up again after about 400 years of silence. And if you look down in your table of contents in the New Testament... There are actually five books that are called history books in the New Testament that start the story back up. The first four of them have a special name. They're called Gospels. And the word Gospel means good news. And it's the good news of the story of Jesus. From the day He was born, and actually before how that came about, until his death and resurrection, approximately 33 years in length. You might ask, well, why, why do we have four stories of the same time period? Well, much like in the Old Testament, you've got the kings and the Samuels telling it, and then the Chronicles comes along from a different angle and tells some of the same history. Well, in the same way, this is probably the most important historical era of the world the 33 years when God assumes a body and lives on the earth and then dies for us and raises again to heaven. And so God has four tellings of that story. 
from different camera angles. It's kind of like, you know, if there's a little story going on, you know, CNN sends out one reporter, but if there's a big story going on, they send out ten reporters. Same type of deal. We, we want to make sure we cover this story from a lot of different angles. And the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, actually have different material. Some of it's the same, especially when you head towards the crucifixion and the resurrection, but some of it's different. The different things Jesus says, the different things He teaches, the different things He does. And we get a very clear and uh, well-fleshed-out story of those 33 years. Well, as you know, at the end of the Gospels, Jesus dies and and raises again to life, and He talks to His disciples, and they're having a time period of of a a little over a month where Jesus is literally living amongst them and appearing and stuff like that. And then the story continues, and what is the next book in your New Testament is called the book of Acts. Some would call it the Acts of the Apostles. And this is the story from chapter 1 when Jesus literally ascends back to heaven and He's gone for good and He's living in heaven even now, all the way for about the next 30 years of how the church of Jesus Christ, the followers of Jesus Christ, first the apostles and disciples and the leaders and stuff, and how the church of Jesus Christ expanded to the world, to the area we now call Turkey, into over to the area that we call Greece, over all the way to Rome. And in fact, the book of Acts ends the history of the New Testament with Paul, probably the greatest missionary and evangelist of all time, as he is uh, in Rome under house arrest, awaiting a trial in approximately 60 A.D. So we have five history books in the New Testament that cover not 1,500, 2,000 years of history like in the Old Testament, but about 60 years of history in the New Testament. So category one is history books. There's 22 of them, Old and New Testament. They cover over 2,000 years of material, and they take us through the story of what God has done in our world. Well, there's a second genre of book in your uh, Bible. And if you look in the Old Testament, after Esther, that's the last history book in the Old Testament, you'll see Job. And Job is the first of the five poetry books in the Old Testament. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And these are not history books that are telling a story as much as they are poetical books uh, doing different things. You have Job, who's kind of a story in poetical form about the sovereignty of God and a guy's life. You've got the book of Psalms, which is the uh, Hebrews, literally hymnal, the, the, the songs that they sung to the Lord at different times. You have the book of Proverbs, which is a book that Solomon and others wrote of wisdom sayings for especially young people. You know, the number one wisdom is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then if you fear the Lord and you revere what He says, here's some more wisdom for you so that you could grow up to be a young man and a young woman who get it right and who follow the Lord in His ways. Then you have Ecclesiastes written by Solomon, it's kind of the opposite of a book of wisdom. 
Ecclesiastes is a book that's kind of a downer. It's got some good stuff in it, but it's kind of a downer because it's Solomon, one of the richest and wisest and most uh, prolific men of his time, basically saying, you know what? Without God at the center, it is all vanity. It is all worthless. This is the book, if you have anybody that lives in Hollywood, that you should have them read. doesn't matter how much money you have. Solomon, I've got more. doesn't matter how many women you have. I've got more. doesn't matter how many horses and, and powerful armies you have. I've got more. And when the end of the day comes, it's all worthless if the Lord isn't the center of this. And it's a poetical downer book about life kind of without God. And then the last book in this area of poetry is a book about love. We just had a sweetheart banquet last night. And Phil and Mimi showed us how not to fall in love. But they've been married 33 years, and because they had some incredible foundations in the midst of all their mistakes, it has lasted, and they are more in love than they have ever been. This is a story of a man and his bride uh, coming together in love and even talking about the sexual and emotional side of the love that God has given between a man and his bride. And so it's another poetical book. Now these poetry books were written around the time of David and Solomon, about a thousand B.C., most of them at least. We think, we're not sure, but we think Job was actually written 2,000 B.C. around the time of Abraham. Not sure about that, uh, but that poetry book might have been a little older. And we also know that some of the Psalms were written even in the time of the prophets in the exile. Uh, so we think that the Psalms could have been written all the way up until maybe four or 500 B.C. So there's this period of the poetry being written. Now the New Testament doesn't have any poetry books. There is poetry in the New Testament. If you go to some of uh, Paul's letters, there are places, and in your Bible it might kind of call it out by having the print look different, maybe in italics or kind of centered versus left justified or something. It's places where we think Paul is literally quoting uh, a psalm, or not, a, excuse me, not a psalm, a, a, a song that the New Testament church sings in their, their congregational time together or something. And then there's songs of praise like from Mary and others in the Gospels and stuff, but there's no book that is a poetry book in the New Testament. There's only poetry books in the Old Testament. And then if you look at the end of uh, that list, the Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon, depending on how your Bible classifies that one, you hit a book called Isaiah. And Isaiah starts the last genre of Old Testament books called prophetical books or books of prophecy. And some people divide these books up into what's called major prophets and minor prophets. Major meaning big, long, and minor meaning short, smaller. But I think it's a lot better to divide them up based on when they prophesied. Because a prophet was a man that God chose in the Old Testament or a woman that God used at a certain period of time to literally speak to the people what he had to say. And then what they said was written down for 
all time. But these prophets spoke to the people, and the majority of the prophets' message was this. Hey, cut it out! That's, that's kind of the prophet's message. Because what was happening at the times that they started writing, and the earliest prophets we think were writing around somewhere in the 800s and most of them in the 700s and stuff, they were writing to tell the people of Israel who were now two separate kingdoms, north and south. The kingdom had split after David and, and the Saul and Solomon, and the kingdom split into north and south and stuff. And both kingdoms, especially the north, but both kingdoms are just like doing their own thing. And the prophets are spokesmen for God that tell them to cut it out. And if they don't cut it out, there's going to be heck to pay. There is going to be discipline that is going to come into their lives. And so I think a better way to split up the prophets are based on this discipline. It's called the exile. And in 605 B.C., after the northern kingdom has already been taken away about a hundred years ago into captivity and the Assyrians came and whooped them, the Babylonians came and took the southern kingdom into captivity for 70 years. And it was called the 70 years of exile. So I think the better way of chronicling the prophets is this way. First of all, there are pre-exilic prophets. The word pre means before. And if we could have that next slide, Becky. There we go. These are the pre-exilic prophets. If you look in your table of contents, it's from Isaiah all the way down to Lamentations. Then you skip to uh, Ezekiel and Daniel, and then you go from Hosea all the way down to Zephaniah. Seventeen in total. And these are the prophets that were mainly speaking to the two kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdoms, basically tell them, cut it out or you're going to be in trouble. And they spoke in kind of the years 840, maybe the earliest ones. There might have been some that early uh, up into about the the, uh, 600 uh, time period. But then we have the exilic prophets, meaning the prophets that literally spoke during the period of the exile. And there's just two of them, and it's the ones we skipped over. They're the ones that are kind of out of line in our Bibles. It's Ezekiel and Daniel. And some of you know some of the stories from Ezekiel, what we sang about you know, dry bones and the wheel and, and with Daniel and the lion's den and all this kind of stuff. But those are actually prophets that are speaking during the time of the exile, that period around 605 to 535 B.C., in that 70 years of discipline that God has His people in exile in Babylon. Then we round out the very end with what we call the post-exilic prophets. And in the Old Testament, there's three of them. It's Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, or Malachi as most people say. And they are the three prophets that speak after the exile. As Ezra and Nehemiah are bringing the people back to Jerusalem, back to the land of Israel, in about that hundred year period, all the way up to about 425 maybe, they're speaking to the people about restoration and what God has to say about what is going on in their lives. So that's about a hundred years with three books of God speaking through those three prophets. 
Now there is one more prophecy book. Most of you know of it. It's the last book of the Bible. Because there's one prophecy book in the New Testament. And it's called uh, the Revelation. It's the prophet John. Most of us think of him as a gospel writer, as an apostle. But God, about 95 A.D., we think, while he was on an island in uh, the uh, Mediterranean Sea called Patmos, God gave him a vision and said, write it down, kind of like he did in the Old Testament. And instead of telling the people what's going on right now, he says, I want you to tell of what I'm going to do in the future. And it's been 2,000 years since then, but it still hasn't happened yet. But what this prophet, John, talks about is the revelation of Jesus Christ at the end of the world. When God's all done with this thing that we call terra firma, earth, He's going to wrap it up someday. It's going to be all done. And He's being patient right now. And there are some of us that wonder how long is He going to be patient And we don't know when this is going to happen. It could be tomorrow. It could be in 10,000 years. We don't know. But when God chooses it's time to be done here, the book of Revelation kind of outlines what is going to happen. And that for those who are in God's family, that there's going to be eternal bliss. And for those who are not in God's family, it's really bad. And... So that is the last prophetical book, and it's the only one in the New Testament, and it talks about the end of the world and how God is going to kind of wrap this whole thing up. Well, that's the end of the Old Testament. We've got history books, we've got poetry books, and we've got prophecy books. The New Testament's got one more genre. It had some history. It began with, it had a prophecy at the end, but all of the books, if you look at your New Testament list, from Romans all the way down to Jude are called letters. And it's the last genre of Scripture that it's only in the New Testament. And they are literally letters from somebody to somebody else. Now the first group of letters starting in Romans and going through 2 Thessalonians, are nine letters that Paul wrote. And he didn't just write these to anybody, he wrote these letters to churches. Uh, Either a very individual church in a certain city, or like Galatians, Galatia is an area of churches, so he wrote it to all the churches in the area of Galatia. Those are churches that are in what we now call Turkey, or over in what we now call Greece. That's the area that he wrote. And he also wrote a letter to the Romans, so all the way over into Rome as well. So there's nine of these letters that Paul wrote, and he wrote them to churches. The next four, starting with 1 Timothy and ending with Philemon, is individual letters, again, that Paul wrote. So now we have letters that Paul wrote not to a church, but to an individual like Timothy or Titus or Philemon. And these are more personal letters. They're not to a group of people as much as they are to individuals. And then we round out the last part of the New Testament with the letters that start in Hebrews and end in Jude. And it's the letters that are written by others, not Paul. 
Just remember, if anybody ever asks you who wrote that letter, just say Paul. You've probably you got about a 50-50 chance or even better. But these are letters that other people like Peter and James and John wrote. And they wrote them to different people uh, and groups. But this is the, the last set of eight letters that kind of round out the New Testament. So we have uh, 21 letters in the New Testament that round out the five history books and the one prophetical book to kind of wrap up uh, the 27 in the New Testament. Now these letters all had specific purposes and as we cover things we'll see. You know, the reason Paul wrote this to the Philippians was because, and we can tell from the letter why he's writing it. Or the reason Paul wrote this to Timothy was because, but most of what the letters are about is not history, but Here's a new thing called the Church of Jesus Christ getting started. They only have the Old Testament as their scriptures. The New Testament hasn't been canonized yet, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But God uses these letters from these different people to encourage the church, to help them know how to live the life that Jesus wants them to live, to help them to know what to believe and what not to believe, to help them kind of contradict the doctrines that maybe have grown up that are heretical and no 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 don't go that way and and the letters are helping these new believers in christ uh, kind of get it together as they are starting this adventure called the church of jesus christ so that's the books of the new testament we have 39 old we have 27 new we have history we have poetry we have uh, um, prophecy and we have letters, four different kinds. And some of you would say, that was really fast. I know. We don't want to spend, this is not a Bible survey course. We'd spend weeks uh, going through all of these. But I do want to tell you this, that Pastor Charlie is putting together right now, and we think we're going to start on uh, March 20th, when our kind of seven weeks in the Word is done. We're going to have a four-week class in the evening, uh, about 6 o'clock, we think, where we're going to go back to this and talk again in more detail about what are the kinds of books in the Bible. And then, depending on what kind it is, how do you study it? Because it's very different if you're studying you know, the, the story in Genesis versus the poetry in Job. Or it's very different to study a Gospel of Luke versus an epistle or a letter that Paul wrote and just how you go about approaching that kind of Scripture and how would you study it. So we're going to just spend four weeks in kind of a series on Sunday evening for those who are interested in getting a little bit more detailed in how this works. Well, the last thing we're going to talk about today is how did those 66 books that we just talked about get into the Bible? How did they become the Word of God? And I'm going to do like I did in past weeks. I'm going to center in on the New Testament because the New Testament is just easier in the process to understand than the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, we are trying to basically do what we call canonize books. And we're not talking about canon meaning boom-boom canon. We're talking about the word canon as it means a measuring stick. The word canon literally means a measuring instrument. What measures up to being in character a book that we would call holy? 
Remember, the word holy doesn't just mean sinless. It means set apart. It means unique. It means different. So what letters and history books and poetry and and, uh, prophetical books are there that we would deem as God-inspired, God-breathed out, and they are going to be canonized, or they are going to be said they measure up and they will become the 66 books of the Old Test of the Old and New Testament. Well, basically, what I want you to understand is this wasn't an event; it was a process. How did that happen? How did these 27 letters and gospels of the New Testament that are being passed from church to church and people in different towns have copies of it? We talked about that last week, and we have copies of Paul's letters and copies of these Gospels. How did they come to the point of saying these 27 of the New Testament are God's breathed out books that would be inscripturated in the Bible? And it was a process. If you remember, I said that the book of Revelation, which we think was the last book written of the New Testament, was written right at the end of the first century, about 95 A.D., And for about 300 years, there was a process by which these books of the New Testament, letters and and, uh, Gospels and prophecy, were passed on and evaluated and stuff. And the church would literally come together and talk about them and pray that God would just really show them. Because they had the Old Testament, and now they're trying to figure out what is God breathed here. And there was a process that individuals, some of the bigwigs in that time, like Origen or uh, different men who were leading the church, or different churches who were taking a lead position, they were bringing people together to talk about this. And finally, around 397 A.D., so that's like 300 years after the last book of the New Testament was written, there was a council called, and it wasn't the first council ever called, but it was the one where the church literally came together called the Council of Carthage. And they said, after we have prayed and investigated, after we have asked the Holy Spirit to help us understand which of these letters and Gospels and stuff would be part of our Bible, these 27, and they listed them out for the first time, were (coughs) inscripturated. They were seen by the church as God's books to us. Now, Along the way in the previous years, there were a few of these letters and Gospels and stuff that had a little harder time getting everybody to kind of weigh in on this. you got guys like Pastor Brad, who doesn't like the book of James very well because of this and that. And there were some other people who thought, you know, the book of James, I'm not as sure about that one as I am this one. And uh, Second John and Third uh, John and Second Peter, people were kind of, we, we, we really need to investigate this. And so there were a few books that just had a harder time coming along, but it was in 397 that the church basically canonized these 27. And there were books, letters and Gospels, that were left out. We have, I didn't remember, <coughs> excuse me, to, I don't read these very often, you know, the Epistle of Barnabas, the Acts of Paul, the Gospel of Peter. Uh, these were letters and Gospels that were floating around telling the stories 
of Jesus and all that, but as the church read them, they were not considered of the same quality. They were not considered uh, God-breathed, and so they were left out of the canon. So you might ask, well, how did they do that? What was the criteria that they used? Well, there was things like who wrote it? Uh, Was it written by an eyewitness? Was it written by one of the apostles that God obviously has chosen and marked? Uh, Or was it somebody else? Is it consistent with other sacred writings? Are there things in this letter or this gospel that aren't consistent with the other ones that we know are or the Old Testament? Uh, What are the early church fathers and the apostles say about the stuff in these letters? Is it holy? Is it does it, does it come across to the reader as something that would be unique as a from God, or is it just something that a man wrote? And lastly, is it accepted by a people of God? But obviously, just like I told you before, I can't prove to you that any of these books were really God-breathed out, like I can prove to you scientifically other things, that there's an element of faith that God has His, His Word and He didn't leave us alone. And, and there is an element of faith in this whole issue of how did God and the church that was begging Him to reveal Himself move to get to the point of having these 66 books. So there's criteria, there's prayer, there's the work of the Holy Spirit, and there is faith on our parts that if God wanted us to have His Word, He would have made sure that we know exactly what it is. Well, my hunch is there might be somebody in here that when you opened your table of contents, there were more than 66 books that were written in your table of contents. There might have been about 12 others. uh, Seven of the Old Testament and five in the New. Uh, You might have a Catholic Bible. And those books are called the Apocrypha. Apocrypha is a word that means hidden or concealed. And the Apocrypha is books, gospels, letters, uh, uh, stories that were written mostly in that silent period. Remember I said from 400 to when Jesus was born, the, the, the Bible doesn't say anything. And, and some of it was written in that silent period about what was going on, <clears throat> like the first Maccabees. Uh, and some of it was written during the first century. Uh, like Baruch. So, how come they didn't make it? Well, when the Council of Carthage decided on this in 397 uh, AD, everyone bought in that these are the 27 books of the New Testament and the church uh, rallied around that. But after the Protestant Reformation started in about 1550, so we're talking over a thousand years later, The Roman Catholic Church, after some of these Protestants had splintered off, they decided that these other 12 books would be deuterocanonical, meaning kind of of a second class, but still making it into the Scriptures. And over the years, for uh, many people in the Catholic Church, they would view them on par with Scripture. Some might say, well, they're, they're of a second class, but that was brought about by the Catholic Church in about 1550 A.D. The Protestants and the Jews have never accepted this. Uh, they, the Jews have always stayed with the original 
uh, canon of 39 books, even though their Old Testament is arranged differently, and they have a different number of books because they squeeze some books together and stuff like that. They've never accepted these um, apocalyptic, <coughs> excuse me, a, I can't pronounce the word, apocryphal books uh, in their canon, and we as Protestants have never accepted those from the old time and from the first century into ours. Uh, they were never quoted or alluded to by Jesus or the other apostles. Uh, they were not accepted by Jewish or Christian leaders of the early times. They didn't show in uh, most people's opinion the, the uniqueness of being from God. In fact, if you read some of these, uh, there's full of kind of fanciful tales of you know Jesus doing this with a pigeon and doing that and some really interesting stories. There's geographical and historical errors in them as compared to Scripture and stuff like that. And so even back 400 years uh, after uh, Christ and the, and, the, and the Council of Carthage came together, these were not accepted, but they were added later. And that's why for most of you, that those books aren't included in your canon. Well, a lot of academic material. Like I said, if you join us for those weeks in uh, March and April in the evening when we start that, after we're done with our seven weeks, we're going to talk some more in depth about this stuff. But I just wanted to leave you with one thing that really struck me today. I just want you to imagine yourself being a person in the world back in about 700 B.C. And you're either in the northern kingdom or you're in the southern kingdom. And like a lot of people in our world, you're just doing your own thing. You're just going your own way. Yeah, there's a God. He's out there somewhere, whatever. And all of a sudden, a guy named Isaiah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets starts talking. And what was their message? Hey, cut it out! And there is going to be discipline. There are going to be severe discipline in your life if you don't. And I'm sure the people back then are like, yeah, whatever, sure. And then the Assyrians in the 8th century B.C. literally came down into the northern kingdom and just took them over. Didn't carry them into captivity, but just like took them over. And then about a hundred years later, the southern kingdom of Judah, which was a little better than the northern as far as following the Lord, was literally taken into captivity by the Babylonians, taken over to Babylon, and, and remained there for 70 years of discipline. Well, there's one prophetical book left that it hasn't happened. And my guess is that there's some people in here, and there's certainly a whole lot of people out there, that as they would read what God's going to do as He ends this world, they'd be saying the same thing. Yeah, right. Yeah, whatever. But what I want you to know, and I'm not going to go into the book of Revelation, I just want you to know that at the end of the story of Revelation, God says there are two kinds of people. Not a bunch of kinds. Not Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists and Catholics and Jews and Muslims. They're, they're, all those distinctions are gone. There's two kinds of people. People who have trusted in Christ as their Savior and people who haven't. That's the only distinction at the end of the Bible. 
We don't read anything about Baptists anymore. We don't read anything about Catholics anymore. But there are a group of people who have trusted in Christ as their Savior who go on into eternity in a really good way. I drive a Cadillac now because my parents gave it to me. Man, I'm going to drive a Mercedes then. And it's going to be really good. And the second class of people who have never trusted in Christ and therefore still have their sin attached to them are going to spend eternity without God. The Bible calls it hell. And my hunch is that there's somebody in here that's basically doing the same thing to God that the people in 700 B.C. said, yeah, whatever, he might be out there. Yeah, there, there, there's not going to be any of that discipline. There's not... And John in the book of Revelation has written it down that there is. And I just want you to know that I would love to talk to you. Or if you saw any of the guys in the band up here before you leave, we would love to just spend a couple minutes or maybe set up a lunch date or something where we could show you from God's Word how you could so easily understand who Jesus is and what He's done for you and be part of of that first group. That not because of what you have done, not because of anything that you are, but because of what Christ has done for you will spend eternity with God. And I don't care whether you're a Baptist by name or a Catholic by name or a Muslim by name. It makes no difference. It's whether you've trusted in the present that God has provided. And that is His Son, Jesus. I would love to talk to you after the service. Would you stand with me? Let me pray as we are dismissed to go out into the world and maybe be the Word of God to those people that we meet. Father God, we are so thankful that You have given us Your Word and that we just so take it for granted. Yeah, it's here. i got versions of it and all that. And God, I pray that You'd help us to appreciate what we have in, in letters and history of what You are doing in the world and helps for us to live the life that You want us to live. And that we would read it. And that we would study it. And that we would also live it in front of our neighbors and the people we work with. And that we would be an open book to them to show them the things that You have shown us from Your Word. And Father, I know that Probably most people in this room have already trusted Christ as their Savior. But I know there's some who haven't, I'm sure. And I pray that if there are those that have never trusted Christ, that they, instead of just heading out the door, would come and talk to me or one of the guys in the band to have us be able to just show them how they can have eternal life with you and life between now and then that is a whole lot better. And God, for those who have trusted Christ, would you use us as we take our lives to the world around us that You have put us around, use us to be the Word of God, the explanation that You have given us in Your Word to the world that You have given us. Help us to be the heralds and the uh, people with trumpets to our lips telling them that they have a God who loves them, that they've got a Savior who died for them, and He's waiting for them to respond. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You are dismissed.